Bonesaw versus the Militarized Robotic Death Werewolf. Chapter 1, in which our boy receives a new assignment. Hey, how's it going? Some of you might know me, some of you might not. If you do, you know what to expect next. If you don't, well, you're about to find out. I'm going to tell you a story about, uh, well, it's about a lot of things. Creepy little girls, a weird cult, and the fuck-all-of-fuck-alls, a militarized robotic death werewolf. How cool is that? Trust me. You're going to love it. Here's how it starts. This story takes place, what, 20, 30 years after all that crap went down with the Tequani and the Spugs and the Sikakeu and the Skeels and the Snyders and the Squasquitos and the like? The world really hadn't recovered from it yet. And seeing as our city was the hottest hit, it still bore the scars of that shit show, I tell you true. Population cut by a quarter. Half the buildings reduced to rubble. Half burned to the ground. Half so fucked up by all the bombs and the bullets that ain't nobody could live in them. The rest was pretty much okay, except for the fact that half of them was little more than cholera-infested overcrowded tenements. Yeah, Sika K.U. bunged us up good. I was working as a tracer for a little shrimp named O'Neill. It was an interesting gig. Here's how it worked. People took out credit to buy single corp upgrades and... What? What's single corp? Single corp is single corp, numbnuts. Read the name. Take a guess. Anyway. People took out credit to buy upgrades, and what's an upgrade? It's an upgrade, like a body modification. You ever see a woman with fake tits? Body mods was the plastic tits of technology. What was on the menu? All kinds of stuff. You got your barrel arm biceps, your second side eyes, your nimble digits, your cochlea connects. They were predictable. Here's the thing, though. Body mods was expensive as fuck. Too expensive for the average schmuck. For a while, only the rich pricks had them. But then, just like everything else, they became necessary for everyday life. People took out credit to buy them because capitalism. And then they missed payments, which was inevitable. And when they missed payments, Single Corp sent them threatening letters. And when them threatening letters was ignored, they contracted O'Neill. And when they contracted O'Neill, O'Neill contacted me. And one by one, the deadbeats was persuaded to give them body mods back. The barrel arm biceps was easy enough. They was just braces. But the second side eyes and the nimble digits and the cochlea connects? They was embedded in the flesh. Things could get a bit... messy. One morning, I dragged an arm, a leg, and half a finger. I didn't drag the finger. Ain't nobody drags a finger. It was in my pocket, dope. Into O'Neill's office, which was an old postal depot clear on the other side of the bottom. Someone had broken two front windows, and O'Neill fixed them predictable duct tape and cardboard. That explained why he was so pissed off when I got there. Or not. Who knew with that guy? He didn't possess a naturally sunny disposition on his best days. But that morning, he clearly had not enjoyed the same lovely start as me. And he was acting, how should I put this? Like an angry little midget. No shit, though. O'Neill was an actual midget. Or was a dwarf? 
Little person? I can't ever get that straight. Whatever. I backed into the place, opened the double doors with my ass, and lugged my haul inside. O'Neill was on the phone, an old flip job with a broken antenna. He gaped at me, told the person on the other line he had to go, and pocketed his phone. Delivery's out back, he said. I laughed and hauled the leg and arm up onto the counter between us. Nice one. These things is heavy. Where you been? I sent you about ten messages. Even paid a kid to run one over. Yeah, about that. Don't ever use that alley boy kid again. Little Runt tried to kick me in the balls. O'Neill frowned. You didn't do nothing stupid, did you? To that specific kid? Course not. Good, because he's not someone you want to... But his friend, Louie? I wagged my hand. He got a little stabbed. Louie? Who's Louie? The kid I stabbed. I held up his knife. I took his knife. Oh, good God. He studied the dismembered pots bleeding all over his counter. Dorcas Bingham? What's left of her? Bodybuilder, huh? I looked at the arm, which was about the size of my torso. Muscles bulging out like, uh, like muscles? Bulging? The leg was about the size of a horse. Yeah. Any reason you couldn't just take the braces off? Subject was noncompliant. Where's the other stuff? Oh, yeah. I dug around in my pocket and found the finger. Slapped it down next to the leg. And? Oh, that's right. I dug around in the other pocket and took out a bloody plastic bag with her eyes in them. And her ear. Forgot to mention that pot. Or pots. O'Neill's phone rang and he held up a finger at me as he went back to his desk to take a call. I turned around to have a sit on one of them chairs that usually sat by the front window, but there wasn't there. The fuck the chairs go? Ruby, O'Neill's partner, came out of the back, coffee mug in hand as always. Kevin Johnson threw him through the window, she said. Ruby had a voice like a frog in a stovepipe. She was about a million years old, with thin stringy hair that she dyed red and orange, and wrinkles on her face as deep as the Grand Canyon. But what'd he do that for? What do I look like, the president? No, you do not look like the president. You look like a walking corpse. She sat down behind the desk. You're a regular riot, you know that? You should have your own television show. You can juggle chainsaws. You're not going to tell me why Johnson broke the window, are you? She pointed over my shoulder. Ask him yourself. And sure enough, Kevin Johnson pulled open the front door and popped inside. I won't say too much about him except this. He was a jerk, and we didn't get along too good. Hey, Kevy, I said. What'd you break O'Neill's windows with them chairs for? None of your business, that's why. None of my business? Of course it's my business. I got nowhere to sit. He stepped up to me, trying to be intimidating, but it was all for nothing. Because really, all I could do at that point was marvel at his perfectly coiffed mane of black hair. It was beautiful. I don't know what he put in it. Probably axle grease or something. But it was glistening. Unfortunately, whatever it was he styled it with also attracted a lot of bugs, a couple of which had become stuck in the pot. Also, he stank. Seriously, I had to breathe through my mouth. He ran a hand through his buggy hair, pointed his finger at me, and said, Screw you! The fact that I still had Louie's knife in my pocket did not escape my attention, and if I'd been so inclined, I'd have used it to carve some very colorful language into his face. Instead, in a moment of comic inspiration, I leaned in toward his ear, let my stubble touch his moist cheek, and whispered, He liked that, huh? I wish I'd seen his face, but I was too busy getting punched in the stomach. Then it was asses and elbows for a few seconds. I managed to get a few shots in, and then Ruby threw the contents of her mug at us. I smelled vodka, and then all of a sudden I was on fire. 
My shirt exploded into flames with a whomp. And Johnson's hair, too. And instead of us rolling around on the ground beating the fuck out of each other, we were rolling around on the ground trying not to burn to death. When I finally put it out, I stood up, patting the little smoky patch on my shoulder, and said, What the hell, Ruby? Have some respect for your elders. Johnson popped up, head steaming, crying, My hair! All of you shut up! O'Neill yelled. I'm on the phone! You don't have to shout at me, Ruby said. They're the ones fighting. O'Neill pocketed his phone again and waved at us. Get over here! Me or him? Not you, him! Johnson shot me a glare and stalked away, brushing a few strands of charred hair off his shoulder. He and O'Neill conferred in silence for a bit. They jawed and jawed. Then O'Neill gave him an envelope with his orders, and Johnson took it and shoved it in the pocket of his jacket and hunched away, sneering at me as he left. O'Neill waved me over and handed me a manila envelope. Your mind's updated? Yeah. Why? This a bad one? The worst. I read the name he'd written on it in black marker. So who's this Boston, Washington? Some schmuck ran off with single corp gear, holed himself up in the industrial district. Got himself some pretty hot upgrades. Next generation stuff. Real hush-hush, you know. Military grade. Lasers. Grenade launchers. I pulled the corners of my mouth down and nodded. Impressive. Dead or alive? Alive. Come on, O'Neill. Listen, what if I just bring back his head instead? There's a reason for this, if you'll let me tell you. Fine. He's got a fail-safe. I threw the envelope at him. No thanks. You just gotta keep his temperature above 94. Uh, look, I ain't got no interest in getting blowed up. They're paying top of the scale for this one. So? And a license to carry. That gave me pause. Getting a license to carry was akin to hitting the jackpot. During the Tlek War, the government gobbled up every available firearm they could find. And after it was over, the corp made a deal to buy them all back at a quarter price. The result was predictable. Ain't nobody but the feds and the most powerful corporation in the world had access to weapons. And they held on to them tight. You can believe it. Sure, folks made their own. This was America, after all. But not everybody had that skill. So we went without. Getting the license to carry was nearly impossible. So when O'Neill offered it to me, he already knew my answer. Okay, I said. He smiled and handed back the envelope. Alive. All right, all right. The industrial district sat about 20 blocks from the bottom proper, right in the crook of the river. The Telec did as much of a job on it as they could, but even so, there were still plenty of warehouses and factories still standing. The city tried to reinvigorate it several times, but it had its hands full with the homelessness and the joblessness and the attics and such. The result was six city blocks completely abandoned, eerier than eerie. Wasn't nothing there but me and the bugs, and the Taquani corpses, and the Snyder holes, and the Skeel holes, and the Scorsquito holes. All I could hear was the scrape of my shoes against the pavement and the whistle of the wind down the streets. I crunched over broken glass, trash, and loose papers, and rotted out plastic bags skidded across my path. It didn't escape my attention that nobody ever came this way no more, not even the most desperate. I mean, sure, the old render implants and paper mills offered ample squatting space and copper to scavenge, not to mention the workers' houses, retail stores, and schools. But I knew the old stories. We all did. There was the one about the cannibals with shopping teeth and necklaces made out of fingers, or the ones with the things with webbed feet that swarmed out of the sewers at night. Then there was talk of the Snyders and Skeels and Scorsquitos that Single Corps promised to get rid of, but hid in the sewers instead. 
Most people thought of them as fairy tales for the tenement runts. Nightmares mothers whispered in the kids' ears late at night to keep them from wandering too far. There was a bit of truth to it, or else there'd have been plenty of scabbers taking up residence. The gang certainly liked it there, though. Tagged it up nice. CBCKs, Puglies, Fuglies, Ninth Street Sinners, Vampires, Bloody Bastards. Plenty of gang signs, too. Mostly the Ouroboros, the snake eating its own tail, but also the crowns and the middle fingers and the vampire teeth and the bashed-in faces. I took the intel out of O'Neill's envelope and looked at the address. 793 Washington Street, 13th floor, room 78. Of course it was. I was on Brentley in the 500s, so I picked up the pace, my nerves so amped up that everything tingled. I didn't use no mods. No tracker with his rate did. Single Corp geo-tracked them all anyway. Said it was for the updates, but we knew better. A tracker being geo-tracked was a liability in my line of work. It's why I didn't own a phone or a computer or anything else that was hooked up to the net. But dear oh me oh my, you might say. How does you ever get the job done? You just showed up with dismembered body parts? Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't say I went in unarmed. I preferred poison. Nerve agents. Didn't need much. A single syringe filled with Novichok. Pure Russian. I kept mine in a plastic container in my pocket. A quick jab to the neck with one of them babies brought down even the biggest, baddest meanie. Then it was chop, chop, snick, snick, and yours truly was 5K richer. I liked other kinds of conventional weapons, too, like Louis Switchblade. I took it out and unlocked it, ran my thumb along the edge. Then I slid it carefully down my pants and against my hip, making sure not to slice my thigh, and tightened my belt to keep it from dropping into my drawers. Maybe it'd be useful. Maybe not. Always best to hedge your bets, though. Twenty minutes later, I finally found the right block in the 700s. But I couldn't find 793. I walked around and around at least a hundred times. The numbers jumped from 781 to 785 to 789 and then back up to 799. It turned in circles as the sun fell behind the tops of the buildings, shading my eyes. A billboard to my right was advertising baked beans. Boston baked beans. Only the baked and the beans was gone, leaving the word Boston. I looked at the street sign. Washington. Up at the billboard. Boston. Back down to the street sign. Washington. Boston. Washington. Boston. Washington. Boston. Washington. And suddenly I knew. There wasn't no 793 Washington Street. And there wasn't nobody named Boston Washington. But I was exactly where somebody wanted me to be. Something flickered in the corner of my eye, and there in the middle of the street stood a tow-headed little girl in a tatted yellow sundress. She smiled at me. Oh, shit. I said. A soft whisper came from behind, and I turned around to see a shovel flying right at my face. Chapter 2, in which our boy meets daddy's girls. I don't know about you, but being dragged along by your feet by four giggling 12-year-old girls is a fucked up thing. I tried to move, but they bound my arms and legs with about a hundred zip ties. 
50 from ankle to knee, and 50 more from wrist to elbow. The plastic dug into my skin, even through my pants, and it hurt like hell. I guess nobody ever taught them girls how to do it right. But I, I guess, too, that, you know, being little girls and all, and living as they did in a post-apocalyptic nightmare such as this, they didn't take no chances. They taped my mouth shut with duct tape, and they even found my syringe, goddammit. And then they kept tickling me, which was weird. Once my head cleared a little, I realized they was quadruplets. Four heads of curly blonde hair, four yellow sundresses with orange flowers in the print, and four sets of bare feet. With all the glass and metal litter in the streets, I was surprised they didn't get cut to ribbons. But every time one almost stepped on something, like a chunk or a hunk or a sliver, she seemed to sense it and barely miss it. Or flick it out of the way with a quick flip of her ankle. That was friggin' amazing. Then they broke out in the song. All at once, all together, without any warning or signal, like it was, uh, what you call it, telekinetic? No, telepathic. I didn't catch the tune at first, but I recognized the words. His hands was quick, his fingers strong, it stung a little, but not for long. Ah, oh, shit. And those who thought him a simple clod were soon reconsidering under the sword. I was there, opening night, 1979, Broadway Theater, Angela Lansbury. Consigned there with a friendly prod. Please don't say it, please don't say it. From Sweeney Todd, the demon Baba of Fleet Street, or something like that. Anyway, with that, they stopped. Dropped my heels on the pavement, ripped the tape off my mouth, and ran away, giggling. Now listen, I don't believe in any kind of supreme being. Not after what I'd seen, and how long I'd lived. From Zeus to Jesus to Allah, it's all one big crock to me. But I do believe in the weirdness. What's the weirdness, you ask? Well, let me tell you. The weirdness is exactly how it sounds. It's when shit gets strange. It's when two and two equals three. When the sun rises in the north and sets in the east. It's when a rabbit dog licks your hand. There ain't no use fighting it. Fighting it only makes it worse. So go ahead. Tell the weirdness two and two equals four. But then, four bastards is kicking in your teeth instead of three. And yeah, yeah, the sun don't rise and set like that. But all of a sudden, it's falling on your head instead of just giving you an interesting evening. And yeah, rabid dogs don't lick people. So this one will suddenly remember that and tear out your adenoids. Best thing to do when the weirdness takes over is relax and roll with it. So that's what I did. I relaxed and I rolled with it. I stared at the buildings. The wind blew. A bee floated by and I thought, oh dear. The sun glanced off the shattered windows and hit me straight in the face. So then I got sleepy. I might have dozed a little. Okay, I didn't just doze. I went to sleep. You know how sometimes you snort in your sleep and it wakes you up? I did that. Then I heard them girls again, giggling as they was wont, and talking too. And underneath all that, I heard the low rumble of an adult voice. A man. Oh, I'm sure you'll love it, Daddy, one of the girls squealed. It's fresh, and it's clean, and it smells very nice. Daddy's accent was posh, too. Smooth and silky. Now, Coraline, you know that doesn't mean it's still good. Oh, yes, 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 Daddy, yes, a different girl said. We know this, we do. But I think this one is a particularly... Is captivating the word I'm looking for? Peculiar, maybe, Coraline suggested. Curious, abnormal, anomalous. Porcine, a third girl said. Oh, Bella, porcine means pig-like, not strange. Well, I think he does look like a pig. P-I-G pig. He's not a pig, he's not. He's a pork chop, and I'm going to slice him right up. 
Daddy said, let's not get ahead of ourselves, Ella. But I'm hungry. All in good time. Caroline whispered something to Coraline, but she sucked at whispering because everybody could hear what she was saying. Coraline giggled, but Ella was not happy. I heard that. Daddy, they're saying things. Now, girls, what have I told you before about secrets? Caroline and Coraline spoke as one. But Daddy, she thinks pork chops are different from pigs. She thinks pork chops are a different animal. They are a different animal. They are. This was the weirdness, ladies and gentlemen, in full effect. Now, I don't know if you ain't noticed yet, but sometimes my mouth moves faster than my brain. Got me into as much trouble as it got me out of. I knew this about me, and in this particular situation, it took all I could take not to say nothing. I mean, I could have shouted out something stupid like, help, or let me go, but the weirdness would have threw it back in my face. So what I do? I locked it down, zipped it up, whatever it took to mind my P's and Q's and shut the fuck up. They continued to babble along, coming closer and closer, and finally, there they were and Daddy planted his feet on either side of my head, upside down, and peered at me. He was an older gentleman, with streaks of gray in his thin and black hair, and laugh lines in his chiseled face. Oh yes, girls, this is a prime specimen you've caught for me here. A prime specimen! Ella jammed her grimy little fingers in my mouth and pulled my lips apart. Look at his teeth, Daddy! Look at his teeth! Bella squatted down and considered my white and pearlies with a grave expression. Oh, they're so clean! It must be a rich one, this. Of course it is. All the rich ones have nice teeth. Bella tried to make me open up a little bit more, but I clenched my jaw. Tell it to open up, Daddy. I want to put my hand down its throat. Now, Bella. I snapped my teeth and the girl squealed and pulled their fingers back. I did it playful. Wasn't trying to mess with the weirdness at all. But Bella rapped on my forehead with her scraped little knuckles. Open up! Open up, I say! Daddy chuckled and the other girls took it as a sign that they could start chanting the words over and over again. Open up! Open up! See its guts! Open up! I couldn't take it anymore. Through clenched teeth, I said, You stick your fingers in my mouth? I'll bite them off and shove them down your fucking throat. Bella leaped to her feet, astonished. In fact, I managed to shock all four of them into silence. Caroline and Coraline, Bella and Ella, and they all stared at me with flat expressions on their faces. Then they let out another squeal and started dancing around and clapping, their toe-headed curls bouncing in rhythm, singing, Fucking fuck! Fucking fuck! He said fuck! Fuckity fuck! Daddy watched, smiling with his teeth. He even laughed a little when one of them, I think it was Bella, sang, Fuckity fuck! We fucked it up! Then he looked down into my eyes for the first time, and that smile turned into a snarl, and he said, Took me two weeks to get them to stop using that word. Oh yeah? Them's the breaks, I guess. Yes. He reached into his back pocket and pulled out a dirty handkerchief and a bottle of something that did not look good. Then he unscrewed the top and poured a little into the rag. Break is probably the best word to use right now.